This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Damian Bolwa, Metro Editor at the San Francisco Chronicle. Today on Fifth and Mission, Climate Change Gridlock in Washington. Our D.C. correspondent, Tal Copen, is on the program to talk about the growing divide between President Trump's denial and California's effort to do something. Tal's latest article talks about the reality climate activists face. They need to focus their energy anywhere but Washington, at least for now. This podcast is part of Climate Week, in which the Chronicle joins other media organizations over the next several days to cover global warming intensively. To find our work, go to sfchronicle.com slash climate challenge. But first, Tall Copen, right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tall Copen, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Tall, I am in San Francisco. You are in Washington. I am in a state where wildfires have been devastating, uh, partly as a result of climate change. You are in a Washington where climate change is not uh, taking up a lot of the debate. What is going on? <laughs> wow, where to even begin? Well, you know, you should probably begin in the White House, which is the fact that President Trump has repeatedly shown what can range from outright denial to, you know, skepticism of the notion that climate change is occurring. And obviously is famously called it a hoax, but, you know, more recently just consistently points fun at it, pokes fun at it. And probably more importantly, has appointed many people within his administration who have sort of made it a mission to roll back a lot of efforts from the previous administration to to try to make progress on climate change. And then you will still have a Republican majority Senate where, you know, Republicans share similar sentiments and pretty much stand in the way of anything that could be considered serious or ambitious uh, climate change legislation. But you do have a, a Democratic House now, uh, at least since the last election cycle, that is doing some on the issue. Uh, but it's it's pretty much a no-go in Washington. You can, you can assume that almost nothing climate change related is going to be happening of substance up here. So what you're saying is that Trump's tweets about climate change match the larger policy. <laughs> Shocker. Shocker. So, Tal, I wanted to ask you about 
your latest article, uh, which is about the way that that groups that want to see action on climate change are taking up their fight, given that atmosphere in Washington. But first, I, I wanted us to talk about the latest in Washington, this fight over emission standards in California, because I think it crystallizes what you just said about this disconnect. Um, this started in July, right, with a deal between some of the biggest automakers and California. Yeah, I mean, it, it it sort of started a little bit before that because where it sort of started was in the Obama administration where the Obama administration had negotiated and worked out a deal with automakers to set, uh, you know, higher gas mileage and reduced emission standards uh, by, you know, around 2050. And things were proceeding along that. The Trump administration wanted to, uh, basically, they rolled that back. But through a quirk, California was granted a, a sort of an ability to set its own standards. And so then, yes, going back to the summer, in secret, we found out that Newsom's administration had been individually negotiating with automakers and basically reached uh, an agreement to sort of restore the Obama targets. And by setting those in California, you basically can influence the entire industry, right? Automakers are not going to make one set of cars to be sold only in California and then sell the rest of them everywhere else in the U.S. and around the world. It, it effectively sort of reinstated for these automakers that signed on the original agreement. And, you know, we have been told that a few more automakers are likely to sign on. There's an, they're, they're encouraging more and more vehicle makers uh, to go ahead and agree to these deals. And it sort of illustrates both, uh, you know, you mentioned the story that I wrote and this broader conversation about uh, Washington not getting things done. It, it kind of talks, it speaks to both issues where you have a state realizing that a state market the size of California is still extremely influential in industries. And so there are ways that even when Washington is not looking to act, states can have, you know, sort of outsized impacts at times on the broader United States uh, industry, such as with the submissions deal. Um, I'm guessing your next question to me is going to be about why all may not be well <laughs> with this deal. Um, it's not. It may not actually happen. Correct. Exactly. So you know the um, the Trump administration does not like the fact that California basically undermined its effort to roll back this deal by putting in place a new version of it, and is has now threatened uh, some sort of legal consequence. We don't know exactly what yet to the state if they don't basically um, nullify this deal. And the Department of Justice has apparently opened an antitrust investigation into the automakers who negotiated the deal. So that may be one. They also may be uh, looking to rescind the authority that was given to California in the first place to set their own emission standards. So, you know, this is not the end of the story quite yet. But it is an example of how a governor like Newsom can actually serve as a you know foil and and stand up to the administration even though it's 
considered a sort of lesser political perch, there's still a fair amount of, of power that comes with being the governor of such a large state. Sure. And he was able to do that under a waiver that California right. has to set its own standards. But then having that waiver saw it as an imperative to take the lead in the same way that Jerry Brown had as, as governor before him. That, that's absolutely right. Because it's not going to get done at the, at the federal level. Well, that brings us um, to your article, which talked about how the fight is being taken up in Washington, which is that obviously activists and people that want to see change don't have the ear of the Trump administration and don't see um, these major deals being done. So how are they how are they taking up the fight? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, one of the things that came out uh, in reporting my story is basically the notion that if you want to get something done in Washington, you basically need to go everywhere but Washington uh, to do the work. And this was true to an extent even before we had the Trump administration, which is, you know, very sort of unfriendly to climate change activists, even when you had Obama in office, which was a sort of administration that was like-minded with the climate change activists. The levers of Washington are hard to pull. Big legislation is very difficult to get done. Even if you have majorities, they tend to be small and built on a few moderates who might go either way on certain issues. Washington is a very difficult place to get things done. States, cities, you know, industries, tend to be a lot more nimble and actually do quite a bit more. And so, you know, for example, I was speaking with the Nature Conservancy, which is a global nonprofit that works on this issue. And they said after the 2010 failure of cap and trade legislation, they realized that you can't just have a Washington-only strategy because as soon as the going gets tough, the, the support kind of evaporates. That You have to build down in order to build up. And so they opened branches in all 50 states and they started looking at the state level, how can at the state level they begin to make change or even at the local level, get those mayors and lawmakers on board, build some bipartisan coalitions, build some success stories. And then the next time in Washington, there's a window of opportunity, you have deep support for some of these issues. And the hope is, uh, on their part, that that depth of support will build much stronger advocacy and allow them to actually get something across the finish line in a way that a just Washington-focused strategy probably couldn't. Yeah. And and even if they preferred working through Washington, there's just no avenue right now. That's absolutely true. And, you know, they basically... When you have an issue as complex, as sort of existential, and as immediate as climate change is for so many communities across the world, you can't just say, well, I'm going to throw my hands up and wait for, you know, the next time there's a window of opportunity. You have to sort of, in their eyes, do what you can sort of see being done. And that can be very small things and it can be very, you know, impactful things. But there were there were so many examples that came up in the course of reporting my story, a lot of them having to do with California or the West Coast. Um, you know, this, I didn't have room for it in my story, but uh, some of the ocean uh, 
advocates that I spoke to said it was really important that California established marine protected areas and has shown how successful a well-placed marine protected area can be in making a difference in the entire ecosystem. And if, you know, under U.S. law, states have somewhere around three miles of the of the off the coast of the ocean that's sort of their jurisdiction and then beyond that to the international waters line is federal. So a state can actually do things within those, you know, parameters that can make a big difference in the ocean. And there are countries that are smaller than California and can look at a state like California passing these policies, trying these efforts, setting up, you know, protected areas or uh, emboldening renewable technologies to develop in their state or that kind of thing. That's something that a country can replicate, even if the U.S. isn't the one leading the way. You know, I love the example that you gave of the Hog Island Oyster Company, which a lot of people are big fans of around here, um, because it sounded like what they're doing is trying to use the fact that people um, are very attached to delicious oysters yeah. Um, to kind of get a lever in showing people um, that something needs to be done. T- tell me about that. It's actually a really fascinating example of how something very, very, very small, <laughs> and we're talking microscopic on, on some level, can can actually be really big. And so this it, Hog Island is one of the vanguards of this, but it's actually the shellfish industry all up and down the coast, on the West Coast, and to an extent on the East Coast. The issue is ocean acidification, which as the one of the founders of Hog Island, Terry Sawyer, says in the story, no one wants to start talking about, you know, carbon chemistry. But the problem is that the ocean is a carbon sink and takes in a lot of the carbon that's in the atmosphere, but that changes the chemistry of the water. And up along, up and down the West Coast, you've seen the, the most effects of warming in coastal areas and acidification, and that actually makes it extremely hard for baby shellfish to grow. And so it's you have a problem if you're an oyster grower, you can't get your oysters to take, essentially. And that's an existential issue for them. It obviously has huge implications for the food chain in the ocean and the broader ocean wildlife. But it's also about the food we eat. And, you know, there's a lot of seafood that's dependent on these same processes. But for the shellfish growers, it's their bottom line. It's their business. If they can't have their hatcheries growing new oysters, they don't exist. And the restaurants they supply to can't you know, have those foods anymore. Yeah, it's one thing to sort of in the abstract tell people that the the food that they eat is affected by climate change, but um, to to have crab not be available, to have oysters not be available, to have prices go up, um, right? To have perhaps your your dog not be able to um, swim in a you know in the in the local lake because it's got blue green algae. Um, these are things people can see. Absolutely. And, you know, the shellfish growers started to notice the effects last decade. And they, once they saw it, they knew that if they didn't figure something out to get them going, they'd be out of business. And so they actually started really interesting efforts, like I said, over the past 10 years or so. Uh, Hog Island actually partners with UC Davis and they do research at the Hog Island hatcheries. So, 
even where they're doing their business, you know, they're coming up with solutions that allow them to continue hatching oysters. UC Davis is taking measurements in their water, is learning things that are helping all up and down the coast understand what the problem is right now, looking at how those solutions work and whether it's something that could translate into a bigger solution. The shellfish growers are also mobilizing politically. And this is what's so interesting is that they, the the growers actually take trips to Washington, D.C. and meet with lawmakers. And Terry Sawyer says, you know, he's not telling them, hey, I'm an environmentalist and you should worry about the earth. He's saying, hey, I'm a businessman. And if we don't do something about ocean acidification, I'm going to be out of business. And here are all the other businesses that once I go out of business are going to be affected. And, you know, he can also sort of reach them through their stomachs and <laughs> bring them out for tasty oysters and all that type of stuff. But it, it's it's a message that's a little bit different than what you traditionally associate with, say, a climate activist, but is so indicative of the nature of the crisis that you have all these frontline businesses that, that do feel the impacts and do know it's real, and they're able to translate that message in a different way. You know, the former governor of Washington State, uh, Governor Gregoire, called them the canary for, for Washington, that the shellfish growers were really the canary that allowed the state to sort of see, oh, the the changes in our ocean are a real problem. And if we don't deal with them soon, we're going to see actual effects from that. So before I let you go, I want to ask you a couple things. You're in Washington. You've been covering the Democratic uh, race for for the uh, Democratic nomination. A lot yep. of uh, people in the party have been clamoring for climate change to take a bigger role in the discussion. Uh, for better or worse, how is climate change playing out uh, in that primary? Yeah. And, you know, we talked that the, the presidential debate was the other night. They talked about it a little bit there. But the truth is, it's there isn't a whole lot of daylight between the candidates on this issue. You know, there's there's always going to be a bit of a divide between the incrementalists and the sort of swing for the fences candidate who want to do big, ambitious change. But I'm pretty sure there isn't a Democratic candidate who wouldn't rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement immediately who doesn't agree that climate change is an existential threat. And so as much as we hear this sort of, we should be talking about climate more in the primary, I'm not really sure what that would accomplish because it's a lot of the candidates sort of agreeing with each other and debating at the margins, you know, what year should the emissions target be pegged to? And even the Green New Deal which sucks up a lot of the oxygen about some sort of intra-party democratic debate. I mean, the Green New Deal is really just a statement of goals. And part of why it gets so much attention is that it unites sort of climate change with climate justice and, you know, right to a fair paying job. It sort of brings a lot of different things together, which allows Republicans to make fun of it a little bit. You know, it does include things like Americans should probably eat less red meat, which in Republican mouths become Democrats want to take away your hamburgers. But even the Green New Deal as a sort of cleavage point within the field doesn't really work because it doesn't commit you to anything all that specific to say you're for the Green New Deal. I mean, you're sort of just saying you're for ambitious climate action. And, you know, Speaker Nancy Pelosi from San Francisco sort of effectively kind of cut off that notion of sort of internecine fighting 
by appointing a climate select committee in the House. So House Democrats haven't actually come up with any of their own ambitious policies quite yet. They're, they have this committee that's sort of supposed to be putting its head together and come up with some proposals. Once we see those, then we can actually see where some of the fault lines lay. But for the most part, it's really a Democrat versus Republican argument right now on climate change. And I'm not sure that it, as much as I think people would like to see it talked about in the primary, I don't know that they're actually going to see a huge differentiation among the candidates on the issue if they were talking about it all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think some activists want to know that it's going to be treated as an existential issue by the candidates and and maybe see them show a little mastery of the issue. Uh, Jay Inslee, obviously, um, somewhat separated himself um, with his focus on it. That's certainly true. And, you know, I think another part of the problem is that this is probably an issue that matters the most to young voters. And, you know, the way you're going to win a primary is typically through older voters. So, you know, that's that's probably part of it as well, is that as much as this is an issue that that really feels pressing for young voters, political strategy dictates that you're probably going to spend more time talking about health care and, you know, education, just because those are such pocketbook issues for your what are known as most likely voters, the people who are most likely to come out on election night and, you know, go ahead and caucus and primary, especially in some of these early states. So last question, if a Democrat were to win and and take office, uh, unseat Trump, how quickly could gridlock on this issue unwind in D.C.? Well, I don't want to be, uh, you know, a bit pessimistic here, but in general, in all my time in Washington, which has spanned administrations and majorities, if you're asking me whether I'm going to bet on action or not, I'm going to bet on not. I mean, that's just the way Washington works. It's very hard to get legislation done. And, you know, this is part of the problem more generally in the Democratic primary is that a lot of candidates have some really ambitious ideas. And if Democrats don't take back the Senate with a big majority or get rid of the 60 vote threshold to advance legislation, it's not clear how a lot of it would get done. You can certainly use executive power and San Francisco's own candidate uh, Kamala Harris has put together a lot of proposals that are sort of creatively looking at what could be done on a, through executive power on a lot of issues. But the regulatory process is slow. It can be challenged in court. It can take years to sort out. As we're seeing with the Obama legacy, it's pretty easy to unwind. Legislation is really the holy grail of getting big things done. Right now, it's not looking like Democrats are going to have some sort of bulletproof majority in the Senate that would allow them to get these big things through. So, you know, there's there's always a chance for a window of opportunity, as some of the lawmakers I spoke with in Washington discussed, you know, Jared Huffman, who represents uh, the coast and the area. He and I were talking about this. He's one of the biggest climate change uh, policymakers in the Bay Area delegation. He was saying you got to keep the flame lit. You got to play defense against the bad stuff. Keep the flame lit. You know, wait for that moment. But it's not clear when that moment uh, may actually come. All right. Well, Tal, thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks to our Washington, D.C. reporter, Tal Copen, for joining us, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. To see all of our work as part of Climate Week, go to sfchronicle.com slash climate challenge. 
Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.